0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the new era in UFO research. My guest is the legendary UFO researcher Jacques Vallée. He is author of numerous books, including Passport to Magonia, The Invisible College, Messengers of Deception, Forbidden Science in four volumes, Wonders in the Sky, Confrontations, A Scientist's Search for Alien Contact, Dimensions, a casebook of alien contact. Revelations, alien contact and human deception. And most recently, Trinity, the best kept secret. Jacques is based in the San Francisco region. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome Jacques. It's nice to be with you once again.
1: Good to see you, jeffrey
0: you were recently in Europe, I know when we spoke last, as a matter of fact, you were in Paris and about to attend a number of, or one, major international meeting of UFO researchers and government officials from around the world. And it seemed to me at the time, and I think to you as well, that this meeting was in effect inaugurating a new era in the field of uh, UFO research? There were
1: eight nations represented, and this is something that we rarely hear people talking about in the United States. Uh, you know, we're so dominated by the uh, American media that we tend to forget that this research has been going on around the world for a very long time. Um, Every country is following the subject. Um, Some intensely. Some go through periods of being very interested in it and doing research, and then periods where they they tend to give up for a while, and then uh, the interest reawakens. For example, in Argentina, you know, uh, there and in in the U.S., people are only interested in. What America does uh, and that's true that uh, uh, it dominates the news and it's true that there are so many competing media in in the u s that uh information you know gets to the surface and people hear about it it's it's a little a little harder when you are even in france to to really keep um, for scientists to really remain aware of uh, what the observations are at any given time, but there are, there is a good network of amateur organizations that uh, uh, cover different parts of the, the country and that uh, report on that the the French um, have not uh, instituted a military control like the U.S. has. You know, um, in the U.S., essentially, the Pentagon has always controlled the news about UFOs, either through the Air Force, through the Navy, and now through the new structure that has been set up, which is good. But most of the reports that, as a scientist, I want to study are civilian reports. They are not classified. They may not Involve high technology, but they involve people experiencing a phenomenon, and that's really the root of the problem for for scientists. That's where we have to start. So, uh, the in, in France, the uh, government agency that is in charge of gathering the information and studying it is a civilian agency, is the space the space agency, the French equivalent of NASA, the CNES, and uh I've been privileged to to ask uh to be asked to serve on a panel, on a scientific review panel, for the last six years, and we follow you know the most interesting reports that have not been explained at the various levels and uh, you know it's it's a uh, very rewarding place from which to study the phenomenon because it has been reviewed by pretty much every scientific discipline along the way. Uh, it's a small group but it has access to all the resources not only of CNES but of the research organizations, of the medical organizations, and so on. So it has been in existence for 40 years. And I don't think people know that
0: in in the U.S. And you mentioned there were eight countries there, so France would be one example, but uh, I know UFO sightings are reported in every country, pretty much. There are reports in every country.
1: Um, They are followed you know, not necessarily on a, on a regular basis by every country, but uh, Holland is, was, was there, very, very interested. Uh, Norway, Sweden, Germany, uh, Spain, of course, has been, has uh, compiled files on the subject for a long time. And with all exchange data across Europe, Argentina was uh, represented where they uh, teleconferencing link, and um, the uh, you know it makes for a very rich discussion. It went on for three days. There was no public, but uh, all the uh, the uh, organisations that are doing private research, uh, you know, credible private research were there. So it was not just a bunch of government people. And there was nothing classified.
0: Well, I assume that the fact that the U.S. government, as far as I can tell, seems to have abandoned its policy of uh, debunking UFO sightings and ridiculing uh, UFO witnesses and contactees, that that will have a, a big impact on the uh, uh, on the global, uh, understanding or the global search for understanding about UFOs.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, and, uh, I, I'm very hopeful. I think it's a new phase. I'm very grateful to be here to see it and, you know, to be in reasonably good health to, uh, continue my work and hopefully to exchange data with uh, you know, if called upon with, uh, people who are running those, those new projects. And, uh, as you know, I've been working with them all along and uh, we know each other and so on. But the government has its own structure and its own need to do things in a certain way, especially when you're talking about the, about the Pentagon. So I'm, it's, it's a third phase you know, I roughly, you know, it's not formal, but I roughly organized the history into three major phases. You know, from 1945 to the Condon Report we, in in 67-68, uh, we have uh, mainly the Air Force taking an interest in this. The Air Force was uh, charged with the responsibility to follow the reports, to gather them, but they took reports from the public as well as reports from their own pilots or from other branches of the government, like the Navy. So it, it was different from what's going on now. I mean, the Air Force was really looking at the whole spectrum. And they, they tried to do a good job within their structure And sometimes it was very good, and sometimes it was, frankly, mediocre. Um, And then in uh, 1967, of course, there was the Condon study that's resulted in the New York Times broadcasting to the world that there was no scientific value in studying UFOs. So the second phase was uh, very dark. Uh, It lasted from 1967 to now. Of course, the research continued in spite of the New York Times, in spite of the Condon Report, in spite of the Academy of Sciences, because people continued to see things, except that they were not being looked at from a, a scientific viewpoint or from a rational viewpoint. So you had all kinds of extrapolations. Uh, the military continued, of course, to study UFOs because they were showing up on their radars. So uh, the only difference is that the New York Times didn't know about it and that uh, only the people who are paying attention and doing research, particularly in Silicon Valley, were following all of this from a technology perspective. We knew about it. NASA knew about it. Except that nobody was officially talking about it, and there was no research being funded except private research, uh, there are a few groups like newfound uh, that did an extraordinarily good job of continuing to talk to the witnesses, publish the report, and continue to to do that and build databases, as I did. Um, then the, the, the change, the third phase starts now, and we really don't know what's going to happen. I think it's very encouraging that Congress has taken the, uh, the initiative in forcing openness. Openness is not disclosure. Everybody wants disclosure, but nobody has told us what that meant. You know, I mean, what is there to disclose? If we don't know what those things are, we, there is no ultimate disclosure. The, the, what there is, is the disclosure that there is a phenomenon we don't understand. But I think in the United States, uh, you know, unless you've been buried in a dark room with no TV, you probably know that there is something going on that has not been solved by the academy and uh, has been kept very quiet by the military all these years. So now, uh, you know, I don't believe in disclosure that much. I do believe in openness. I think we need to open, hopefully we will open the, the doors and the windows and let people come forward with their
0: information. As I recall, it was in 1954 or so, there was, uh, I think I have the name correct, the Robertson panel that argued that the government should try to dismiss interest in in UFOs in order to avoid public panic. There was concern that if if people thought the government wasn't uh, in control of things, that would create widespread panic and that should be avoided.
1: That was part of that. And uh, that panel, by the way, was was top secret. It was uh, organized by the so what, what the people were told and then what you find in UFO books is that eventually part of the information was revealed, that that panel had taken place, that the panel had recommended to, uh, dismiss most of the reports from the public because they were so vague and so on. And that on the contrary, there should be more intense attention placed to it by, essentially by the Pentagon, by the armed forces, to try to get better data, which is something that, well, sounds reasonable given the times. I mean, now we know it's not enough, but in those days, you know, that, and to some extent that's what's going to happen now. I mean, there is a group that is very much within the military structure, that has been tasked with primarily looking at the military reports because they have sensors, they have aircraft, they have spectra, they have radar, they have uh, uh, infrared images, they have all those things we've seen, and uh, they have the tools to analyze it and the budgets to analyze it. So the, the military has already said that they will only look at a... a the best uh, the best uh, described and measured part of that. So that will be about maybe 2% of all the reports. Now, the question that any scientist would ask is, what are you going to do with the other 98%? Well, I think I'm interested in the other 98% because a farmer in his field is, uh, you know, a pretty good sensor of the environment. Is, uh, especially, you know, animals react to UFOs. Uh, people see them for minutes or hours, um, and we can get very good data from that, human data. Uh, we don't get all the scientific data we would like to get, but... Uh, Maybe that will lead to a new generation of sensors we can develop, and then you know that's what mr Bigelow uh and the the project in uh, uh you know in nevada uh was uh was trying to do and that idea has continued it's a good idea the The other part of the robertson panel was uh, was a lot more dark and it has come out in little bits and pieces. The the reason I have discussed that, as you know, with Professor Hynek, many times he was there. Uh, He testified before the panel. He was not there for every meeting, but uh, I also know uh, the man who was in charge of uh, photographic intelligence for the Pentagon at the time, uh, who was there, and was there in charge of the films and the photographs that were classified and that he presented to the panel. And he gave me the other side of that. So they, they reviewed all the data for several days. The people there were the luminaries of American science. Uh, all of them had um, classified access to bathtub secret in their work, not just for the panel. So they knew how to handle that kind of data. The the concern, the real concern was that if there was a nuclear attack from the Soviet Union, which in those days was something that you really had to consider, not that we don't have to consider it now, but in those days, you know, that was really the number one scenario that you had to watch for. Um The A a simulated wave of UFO reports, a lot of agents trying to report UFOs to the Air Force, could saturate the teletype network. The Air Force relied on the network of teletypes. There was no internet. There was a phone system, but the phone system couldn't be used effectively to get that kind of data. So it relied on the network of teletypes, And those teletypes could be saturated with all the different organizations within the network reporting fake UFOs. And then during that, you would not have the tools to communicate at the top level to uh, respond to a nuclear attack. That was the assignment to the real assignment uh, to the panel. The assignment did not come from the Air Force. That was a lie. It came from the Central Intelligence Agency that was running the panel. Now, uh, that's, um, you know, something I do remember because before I left, uh, Northwestern University after my, my PhD in AI, uh, during the summer, um uh, uh, Dr. heineck said it would be a great idea if I had time to reorganize his files because his files were very disorganized and you know of course went back many years and had never been restructured so i i, I had an office in the computation center where I was working full time at that point, and I went out and bought some filing cabinets throughout the old mm-hmm. ones and then started going through all the files, which included the, the the Air Force files, which, by the way, I spent four years reorganizing and uh, reducing to computer files, and then sorting to find out that the real cases from the cases that could be explained in a way that the Air Force had not done. And I still have that data. And I hear that one, one of the things that the new panel is going to do is to, to review the Congress has said you need to go back and review the old files. Well, you know, I spent four years with, uh, my, with the help of my wife who was a, a professional psychologist, the access to high access to the Air Force data and Major Quintanillo, and then access to the resources of the university to try to segregate the 20% of the data that had to do with UFOs and throw oh. out the other 80%, which did not, which was misperception, misclassifications, and so on. We spent four years doing that, taking one month at a time you know, for the totality of the of Project Blue Book, and nobody has bothered to review that. But those files are in machine readable form. That's one of the databases we have, and I'd be happy to donate it to to the new uh, the new guys in in charge if if they are interested. Or they can redo it themselves. I mean, it's. But I don't think Congress realizes. How much work is involved just with that one source of data? Now the Robertson panel uh, data was in Heineck's files. Uh, Dr. Heineck had knew it was there, but he had not reviewed it since 1954, in part because everybody was disgusted with the conclusions that essentially closed off the, you know, a lot of the the scientific interest in the data. And, of course, what Dr. Heineken and I wanted to do was get science, American science, to start looking at the data. And the the Robinson panel was a setback because they said only the military has the right sensors to get good data, which is in part true, but then you throw out 90% of the rest of it which includes all the medical impact, includes all the open air data, all the all the rest of the data. Um, in the files I found I went through the files and I restructured them and I hit a little folder that everybody had forgotten, especially Dr Heidi, which had two pages of a memo written to the Robertson panel and to the organizers of the Robertson panel, which were the Air Force and the CIA. That was my first shock that the panel was not an Air Force panel, that the Air Force was there as a contractor to the intelligence community, which is understandable. I mean, that's that's really uh, understandable, but it was a much higher level uh, in terms of the global access to data and to science than just what the Air Force was supposed to be doing. Uh, The second uh, surprise I had was that those two pages were marked secret in red. And the term secret had not been scratched out and revised. Now, by then, you know, this was 1968, not 1954. So usually over that time, that kind of document would have been expired as a secret document. But it wasn't. So, but I had it in my hands. So I I had a, a, a problem of what to do with it. And, uh, I consulted, consulted Dr. Heineck. Uh, he's the only person I took into my confidence. And, uh, I, we decided that uh, we would approach an organization that could declassify it. And we eventually got it declassified. The first thing I did was to hire an attorney who was familiar with the government and so on to uh, explain to ask uh, what well, procedure for declassification of documents. And we wrote to the Air Force because the document was part of an Air Force file. And the Air Force sent us a, uh, you know, a mimeographed uh, circular that said if you're interested in Blue Book, you can ask for the. Uh, for the macro film, and this is how you do it, and it's deposited at such and such a, uh, uh a depository, and that was the end of it. They never re- really responded to what we were asking. But fortunately, at the time, I, I was working with, uh, um, helping a, a Senate panel on, on a different question of, uh, access to computer networks, and I had access to Someone who was a very highly placed uh, attorney who was, uh, in, in charge of the, on the Senate side, in, in charge of data for the military. And, uh, I explained the situation to him and he said, send me the memo, the original, uh, through, you know, a secure, uh, uh, mail and I will Get, I will see that it's declassified, so I went through the legislative branch because I knew that if we submitted it to the Pentagon it would be uh, it would disappear, and we didn't want disappeared uh, and this this man this attorney who was uh, actually the, the the general counsel for uh, for the congressional branch that supervised the budget of the Pentagon so, uh, you know, he could technically, he could turn off the budget of the Pentagon so he was in in a good situation to declassify that memo and uh, the, made the memo available suddenly people became aware that there was much more behind the Robertson panel than what what had been, what the public had been told and that in fact they had done a very, very thorough job of reviewing the information. But the question was, what what was that memo doing there? The memo came from a contractor, namely Battelle Memorial Institute, which had the responsibility initially for the files that went to Bloomberg. <laughs> they had just done a... Uh, uh, a review of the Blue Book files officially with a, f- a large budget for the time, <coughs> budget that was bigger than the Condon committee budget was later, uh, and this is in nineteen nineteen fifty four dollars, and they had come to the conclusion that there were there was research to be done, and that the memo recommended that the Robertson panel not be called that the, the project should be stopped because there were areas of research that would complete the information that the panel should be given and that it was premature to gather these top five scientists, including uh, uh, I- including a Nobel Prize in physics uh, to review data that was incomplete. Uh, it was a very thoughtful a very smart memo uh, to the top level. And it was addressed to the real organizers of the panel, which was the CIA. And it was ignored. The panel went on and the rest of it, you know, is lost. is still classified. I hope there are still a few people who remember what happened because I'd really like to know if what they, or what they recommended was ever implemented because they they had a number of recommendations on what should be done in UFO research. And I don't know whether that was ever implemented or not. I never had the clearances to know that. Mm. So there are many areas of darkness that from a historical perspective are extremely interesting and I hope that the initiative by Congress is, is going to bring that to The light
0: of day. I think one of the areas that must have been of concern even as early as 1954 and is probably still of great concern today is the seeming relationship between UFO sightings and various nuclear facilities, particularly nuclear missile facilities in in the United States. One
1: of the databases that um, that has been developed very well, has been developed in France, but it's now public. If again, it's public but the public doesn't know that it's public. Uh, it's a very, very good database developed in France by people with, with government facilities uh, of uh, aircraft pilot sightings. The total database about 3,000 cases and the database we were working from was, uh, about 800, 800 cases. Uh, Dr. Richard Hayes at NASA collaborated in building the database and I was part of that. And the, 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 main, uh, uh, the main person who developed the database is a, is a French, uh, uh, actually a French uh, uh, working for the French government the French government um, executive uh, working primarily in uh, in defense and but this is a public document you so see they looked at uh, military cases, civilian cases and private aircraft so within the database you have all three with the pilots themselves being interviewed on the wreck. So this is not somebody saw a plane and there is a rumor that the the, the pilots saw something. I mean, this is from, you know, they've gone through the actual data re- recording many cases, radar data, many cases, radar visual data uh for military pilots, private pilots, and um, uh uh, airline pilots. The data is extremely rich and we've been analyzing it. Nobody knows that, but, you know, this research has been going on. What you find is that there is a, a, a discrimination factor in the database between the military planes being approached by UFOs and the civilian planes Reporting UFOs. And again, uh, I, I don't think anybody in the U.S. has picked up on that research. That's certainly something that should be done. The database is done, a high quality database. It's one of the databases that we turned over to BAS, to the ATIP project. I don't think it has been analyzed. Of course, I'm no longer, you know, privy to what has happened to the databases that we created. The project was classified, and I worked on it under a uh, uh, top secret clearance, like the rest of the team uh, in Las Vegas, working with the, the Bigelow Aerospace uh, project. Uh, the, the data, when, but that particular part of the database is not classified, it's, it's open which has integrated it with everything within 260,000 cases worldwide. Okay. That database is still classified, but the pilot database is not. So what was discovered by the people who did that study was that there, there was a, a radical difference between the behavior of the phenomenon when it was approaching a military aircraft and the behavior of the phenomenon with civilian aircraft. That needs to be reinvestigated. It needs to be redone with more data. We, Of course, we have more data now. The database mm-hmm. is 20 years old. Uh, so who is working on it? You know, this is certainly one of the things that needs to be done, because if that's verified, it means that the phenomenon has a special interest in military craft, military facilities, uh, and it displays a different behavior than it does in the other 90% of the cases when it's being seen over fields, over cities, over other areas than the military areas. Now, that's something that, again, nobody has looked at seriously, but it's
0: something that should be picked up. How would you characterize that radical difference? In um, civilian
1: cases, typically, you know, if you remember the Spielberg movie, you know, uh, where um, you know the the control tower says, uh, "Do you want to report a UFO?" And there's a long silence, and the pilot finally says, "No, sir, we don't see any UFO." And the radar shows, you know, the aircraft, which is a, a you know a civilian airline, uh, 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 plane being approached by, by UFOs. Uh, well, many of those cases were in fact reported and we have the transcript from the pack. The, an, an object, a light or, or sometimes a well-defined object right. comes and paces the aircraft. Sometimes it goes around the aircraft and, and then it will it will go away, will be seen by passengers. It will be seen by the pilots, and often it's seen by the radar or radars, when there are several radars over you know a city, uh, that can track both the UFO and the aircraft. And you know, everybody knows that. Of course, it was denied for many years. The airlines didn't want any trouble. they didn't want people to be scared you know, and all all of those things. But uh, Dr. Haynes, with his organization, has done a great job of uh, describing all that, and that contributed to that database. And that's available if people wanted to take the trouble to look. And this includes a lot of civilian cases. It's a pity if nobody is going to look at that and only look at the military cases. Military cases are very different. Uh, typically an object arrives. It's perceived as a threat by the aircraft. so the devices on the aircraft are going to pick it up, first the radar and then uh, infrared sensors and then other sensors, some of which may be classified, will will interrogate the object and will gather data about the object. That's not the end of it. The object seems to be completely aware of the situation that it's being watched watched. It may not only pace the aircraft but it can go around it uh it can even place itself as in a case that was described before the United nations uh you know uh, later on uh by one of the pilots of an army helicopter. Being on a collision course with an object that came straight at the at a helicopter until the helicopter went into a crash maneuver, essentially going uh, going down as as fast as a helicopter could. It was one of the big banana-shaped helicopters, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. with a number of uh, uh, military officers on board, and they all saw that. the here we, you have, um a maneuver which is hostile. I mean, it has to be interpreted as a hostile maneuver. I asked the pilot, Captain Coyne, privately, uh, after when we were at the United Nations, uh, what went through your mind and what did you do when you were on that collision course and you could not avoid the collision? He said, sir, I closed my eyes. And prepared to die. Okay, now that's a military officer telling you that it's not. He's not afraid of telling you that he had exhausted all the things he could do in in avoiding the collision. Turned out the object came rushing at the helicopter, placed itself on top of the helicopter, which was a skyhook. Okay. This was not the little helicopter you see you know over San Francisco or Albuquerque, and it lifted the helicopter, so they you know they, all the controls were down for essentially a crash landing, and the helicopter was going up now Captain Coy described that before the political committee of the United Nations as part of our panel, you know which everybody has forgotten. Uh, and the entire room was completely silent. You had every country on earth there represented the political committee, the full political committee of the UN, completely silent because it was obvious. that so this was, uh, you know, when he says, I close my eyes and prepare to die, you know, as a military officer, again, this was the army, not the air force. Uh, that was a very special moment. So that characterizes, you know, there is direct intention to prove something on the part of a phenomenon. Now, of course, it had to be interpreted as hostile, but frankly, there was nothing they could do. I mean, they couldn't shoot at it. They couldn't do anything else. Nobody would come to their help. Uh, the, it turned out it they the helicopter was released and the object went off. Okay. There is no uh, no way to avoid looking at this as and as an attempt to number one to make itself known. So yeah, this is not something you can keep on denying, no matter you know how how many PhDs you have. You know, and I I I hear on the radio people saying, well, it was just a balloon, you know, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, they or, or they were, they they didn't see very well. Well, you know, they that that team was coming back to their base in Ohio from an eye exam. Okay, periodically, if you fly those hooks, uh, you know, the the army mandates that you have to have good vision, which is a reasonable thing to do. And so they were coming back from their eyes being tested. So when the skeptics say, well, you know, they had fuzzy vision, they were tired and so on. I mean, that's, that's just complete, um, ignorance. Okay. Complete, uh, uh negligence, actually on, on the part of scientists. So that's what the difference between the behavior of the phenomenon when it's over uh, over a, a base, a nuclear base, uh, when it's, uh, you know, over a, a military aircraft and over a commercial aircraft or a private aircraft. So uh, those are the things that people need to know if they are going to restart the research seriously. And the the only way they are going to know it is by looking at the work that has been done over the last 50 years you know, going through these phases and accumulating the data. And the people who have documented this were not a bunch of, you know, uh, stupid people in Silicon Valley, as I've been told recently, or a, a bunch of amateurs, although the amateurs have done a good job. But, you know, they were teams of professionals, of scientists of different disciplines looking at this with The military officers with pilots, with retired commercial pilots and so on in on their own time, not being paid, documenting the data. Fortunately, the technology that we have now with just the computers in this room, you know, are way above what you would have found in a university computing center 20 years ago in terms of the things we we can do the things we know how to do, like developing new software. So uh, don't give me this thing that this was amateur research that we can now forget and now we're going to do it right. Okay, uh, We need everybody involved. We need all the data. We need to look at what has been done in the past and we need to do it right.
0: I uh, seem to recall there have been reports of UFOs appearing in the vicinity of uh, nuclear missile sites, I think maybe in North Dakota, for example, and disarming the uh, missile relaunch uh, launch mechanisms. Uh, if, if true, I don't know whether that's true, but I would think that sort of thing would be of great interest today to the military.
1: That is true. And It has been true in several countries. And there have been meetings that are known, I mean, this is on the record, uh, between the U.S. and uh, first the Soviet Union, and more recently Russia, because the the Russians had the same experience. And nobody wants to, I mean, there may be a nuclear exchange at some point. People are now talking about it about Ukraine. You know, it could happen. Uh, It would be crazy, but it could happen. And nobody wants to launch, you know, an intercontinental nuclear missile by mistake. I mean, it may be launched, but uh, there there are, it was thought that there were guidelines to prevent missiles going off You know, without anybody intending to launch them. And some of those incidents got the attention of all the security people worldwide, because if somebody can take control of, of a, of, of a nuclear launch site, then, you know, a lot of, a lot of regulations, a lot of precautions have to be redone. And uh, of course, that's beyond my level. It's beyond the level of the people now looking at UFOs and Congress and looking. Okay, it has to be done at an international level where we can discuss it realistically with our potential enemies. And that's a very different kind of,
0: of meeting. I'm under the impression that in the popular UFO culture, which is something of a circus, uh, there is a belief that these UFOs will save us from ourselves if it ever came to uh, nuclear war. And that's what they're demonstrating. I sort of followed
1: that for a while and sort of, uh, it would be nice <laughs> to entertain that idea the fact is uh that we came very very close to nuclear war by accident three times and those those three times have been reviewed in great detail there have even been movies about it about you know accidental nuclear war and those uh those were real and were, those were very scary um uh, that that has happened to several countries, but in the U.S. it has happened three times, when including one time when uh, uh, the the system was at the high, you know, the DEFCON classification, when the B-52s had taken off and had to be recalled. Now, that is. Uh, and there were no UFOs intervening to stop it. So uh, you, you can, it will, it's a nice idea, but I, I don't think that uh, they care that much about it.
0: Well, I guess the real issue. Uh, in terms of the present era, and, and what we can look forward to is, will the United States develop a, a government-sponsored, non-military research program of the sort you mentioned has been going on in France for the last 40 years?
1: That, that's really one of, one of the questions facing both Congress and the Pentagon today. Um, you know, what is it you want? Um, and some people have already responded on the record at the, the, the hearings, uh, you know, a few, a couple of months ago. Uh, I, I heard one of the officers saying that this would be, should be looked at within the United States, away from other countries, because of the potential of discovering things which would be Strategically important, and that industry could use, especially the defense industry, could learn something from looking at the UFO records, which they've been looking at it all the time, you know. But but now looking at it on uh, in with much greater resources across the the military branches uh, to develop so that the US could have better defence technologies. That's a valid idea. It's certainly one that will be at the forefront before Congress. Congress will have to make a decision on this, uh based on the assessment of of the analysts. Okay, that's what the you know the analysts are for on both sides of the of the fence. The the, the other discussion is this is potentially a threat to humanity. You know, so if you if you if you extrapolate, if you take the uh, these um, descriptions seriously, and now you have to take them seriously because you know the, if, if you if if you look at the data that has been vetted, we we have all the parameters we can answer pretty much any question that the academy would have okay about the status of the subject today okay and people are going to discover if the the current effort goes on which i hope to see to live long enough to see people will discover that objects have been recovered and that we we have access to the materials and as you know, we, we've already done our own research at our own level about to document that, both in my books and in, uh, you know, in Trinity uh, and also in the lab. And we've published the results in the scientific press. So this is on the record. It's it's not a rumor. It's not just a bunch of nice people with ideas. <laughs> this is on the record, okay? on the scientific record. So, yeah, we can build on that. I mean, so and we can build on that with other countries and that's what that meeting in France was all about because France has had a group like that working openly for over 40 years with government funding with access to government resources. So um, we can build on that and one of the questions that people ask me is, you know, since I'm, I'm in the, you know, fairly unique position of having had access to the U.S. data. I mean, I was part of, uh, you know, ATIP, uh, BAS uh, of those projects, but I'm I also on the advisory board for the French CNES for the last five years. So I know the French government data and I know the French government channels that are used to filter, examine and, uh, uh, access the data. So, um, people say, you know, why don't the other countries come up with their data and publish it? Well, the French have published their data. You know, it's, it's on the record. It's on the internet. Anybody can look at it. Um, uh, they have not been completely open with the rest of it at the government level. The French government has never said we think there are UFOs. Okay. Uh, they've encouraged research on an unknown subject in science. Like, uh, you know, a lot of cancer research is an unknown subject in science. The shape of the universe is an unknown subject in science. Uh, the What determines the date of the birth of a baby is an unknown subject in genetics. Okay, We don't really understand it. So there are a number of open subjects in science. And UFOs is one of them. The French government has never said we believe that there are real UFOs uh, and that the United States should communicate with us and so on. And the reason is, and it's, it's a puzzle for many people mm-hmm. that I know in Silicon Valley. I mean, they have all this data, you know, why don't they go public and say, we're going to study it openly and because we believe that the phenomenon is real. Well, they haven't done, they haven't taken that step because everybody is in awe of the power and f- frankly the resources of the United States of the uh, Academy of Sciences of all the all the astronomers in the United States all the you know uh, American science is number one not in every area but it's number one in ma- in most important areas of science so, no scientist in France is going to volunteer, uh, to go against that, uh, with a proclamation that he knows that UFOs are, are real and potentially, you know, an important subject in science because he doesn't want to be ridiculed by the American Academy of Sciences. And the American Academy of Sciences is, is has never reversed its assessment that there is nothing there, even now. So that we know members of the Academy who are open to research, who are encouraging research, who are participating in research, either in the Academy of Medicine, or the Academy of Technology, or the Academy of Science, but they that's not a public statement from the Academy. And until that happens, I doubt that any uh, academician or any top scientist with a lab and with a budget for his lab to continue his research is going to go public with that kind of statement until the U.S. does it first.
0: So in other words, we're really not yet in a new era. We're maybe on the cusp, but uh, certainly the New York Times has gone public, but that's really not enough is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, the the last time the New York Times went public was after the Cornyn Report, where the New York Times published the Cornyn Report that said that nobody should study UFOs because it was a waste of money and there was nothing there. So, you know, the the New York
0: Times, um,
1: you know, has a business to run.
0: Well, they have uh, released the uh, Navy photos of of the sightings off the coast of uh, California. That's well acknowledged at this point. Uh, I think the... uh, Report that went to Congress seemed like an official government acknowledgement that, uh, there is an unknown phenomenon. Now they're calling it unidentified aerial phenomena rather than UFOs, maybe as a way to separate themselves from the earlier world. But I guess what I, I still hear you saying that they haven't gone far enough yet.
1: We're well, not there yet. Um, the, the, I think the breakthrough, uh, has come from, a, a small number of very courageous people going public, including officers, uh, of, uh, from the Pentagon and so on with the right credentials, um, including, uh, Mr. Mellon, you know, who had had a high position in, in under two presidents um calling attention to, to the data and, and then pushing for data to be released. The Nimitz was part of that, the Nimitz photographs and, and, uh, films, infrared films. And, uh, there were at least two other cases and then other cases are still classified that were shown to Congress. Now, yes, that's a breakthrough and Again, I'm happy to have had the opportunity to live long enough, uh, to see that and to see that, that change, the sea change where now we, the, the phenomenon has been acknowledged officially. That doesn't go far enough because the scientific community has looked at that and has Many members of the scientific community have gone public and even created their own organizations to say "Now we're ready to study this with the resources at our disposal with our labs with our computers with our microscopes so but uh, and as you know uh you know a number of scientists I've worked with uh including uh Dr. Gary Nolan at Stanford, uh have started to, uh, you know, put their, their lab facilities, uh, at, at, at work on some of the data. I've transferred to Dr. Nolan my, all, all my collection of, uh, residual materials that I had from a number of cases. And we started to study them together. And there is a small team now in California. And as you know, there is a, the small team at Harvard and the dr. avi Loeb now developing new optical systems to document what's going on so you you have at least two major universities where you know first first rate scientists are at work on their own time on their own budgets developing developing these new methodologies and new instruments they That's not, uh, American science, you know, uh, dedicating itself or part of itself to a major study. Uh, now, I've seen this three times in my (laughs) now long life. Uh, I've, I've seen it first with the moon shot. Okay, the moon exploration. I can remember sitting in my living room in back in New Jersey, um, you know, in the sixties, with my two little kids and my wife watching somebody walk on the moon on TV, okay, on prime time. Everybody around the world was watching this. And um, where where is it now? I mean we went there, there were, what, 11 missions to the moon, manned missions of the United States, uh where we, we have the TV, it was on TV on prime time. And then for 50 years, nothing happened. So nothing happened because Congress said, we're not ready, the technology is not ready, which is probably... True, but we can we could have developed better technology that back then. You know the the rockets. You know until SpaceX, we didn't have a rocket that could go back to the moon. And SpaceX is only about twenty percent more powerful than the Saturn V that we had back then in in the early seventies. Okay, twenty percent. I mean in science and in, in in Silicon Valley terms, I mean, <laughs> I can tell you, in venture capital terms, 20% better in 50 years doesn't do it. I mean, It's a failure. It's a failure of technology. It's not great technology. Now, we're going to go back to the moon with, you know, better prepared, with better medical support, better training, better everything. So, yes, it will be safer. Uh, um, although, you know, we've, we've lost a rocket recently, you know, that should have worked and didn't work. So we know the technology is not a hundred percent reliable yet. Okay. The, so it took, it went dead for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Second example, the internet. People are being told, you know, look at the web, you know, anybody can use the web. We invented it. You know, around the year 2000. Well, you know, I've worked with people who invented the ARPANET. The the man who really invented the ARPANET is not well known. Uh, he was at the Rand Corporation. He had the vision of the network, of a network that was where you could you, you could have, um, you know, packets that could go everywhere, and that was essentially. Indestructible. You couldn't stop the network. And he did it both for commercial reasons, which people don't understand still today, and for military reasons. He did it under the RAND Corporation, which was a research and development branch of the U.S. Air Force at the time. Nobody paid attention. took him four years to get the Pentagon to dedicate a small amount of money to build what was the ARPANET, which was an experiment. I I worked with him. Uh, his name was Paul Barron, B-A-R-A-N. And he is the real you know, grandfather of, of all of everything we use today, which was a packet technology, which was pure genius. Uh, when the French put together a national network, they ignored it completely. They didn't have packets, so they they built a network that didn't survive and uh the internet just took over worldwide the because it was based on packet switching um I worked with Paul Baron on one of his projects. He was my mentor in uh in computer science um uh, i then Became one of the principal investigators for ARPA at the Department of Defense. Uh, we built the first um, computer conferences on the network and turned it into a commercial facility, which everybody has forgotten. But you know, good software gets forgotten because good software plunges in in the depth of a machine, and people don't don't see if it's really good software. People shouldn't know it's there. Okay. Should be reliable. You shouldn't have to mess with it. So that's the kind of software we built. Okay. And then the ARPANET died just like the going to the moon project died for about 50 years. As far as the public was concerned, that the, again, the, the budget for ARPA, the Pentagon said, well, you know, We've proved it. We can use it. We don't, we don't need to continue paying for it. And it died. It was picked up by the National Science Foundation, which is a public, unclassified science agency funded by the U.S. government, but not by the Pentagon. It's a major funding agency for science for astronomy, for biology, for all kinds of, of research, and uh, material science and everything else. Mathematics is uh, funded by NSF. And the uh, NSF picked it up for one reason, that it saved money in linking together different universities that were doing the same research. So why buy computers for every one of them? When you could have a network where you could network all the computers together and then you didn't need to, to build more, more computers. Okay. That was pure genius. So they got the idea that this was the, the engine that could revolutionize American science. And they did it without telling anybody. They just uh, started funding a number of facilities around the country and that was the Internet. It was a mistake at the beginning because there were many different Internets. Finally, they got the idea we need to have just one massive Internet, and uh, that worked. And then the public only became aware of it about 1996, 1997, when the uh, web was invented. And the web was not invented in America. It was invented in Switzerland by a a very, very bright young computer scientist who just hacked up together a piece of software that everybody could use. And he said, here, you know, see if you like this. And everybody loved it the first day. And that became the web. Okay. But it wasn't done with American dollars. So that's the, that's the history that I think all the people using the web today have absolutely no idea how it came about. I I had the privilege of living through that, but there was a period of 50 years when nothing happened. And we're doing the same thing with UFOs today. You know, there was good research on UFOs 50 years ago. I think the research at Battelle was doing in 1954 was that you know, was a high water mark the next high water mark is what Bob Bigelow and our team did that resulted in ATIP that became public uh, because of Mr. Mellon and because of uh, uh, Mr. Elizondo, you know, bringing it to, before Congress and bringing it in Washington, you know, on reviving the idea and showing how it could be done. Um uh, the the project itself died and uh all the the work that we've done died with it and somebody will revive it again, just like you know the moonshot was revived by Elon Musk, you know, not by Congress. And um You know, uh, just like things, somehow, even in this area of high technology, things have to die for 50 years before the public can really benefit from it.
0: Given that history, it makes me think about the field of parapsychology. And I know you've been somewhat aligned with that field as well, because... I got my doctoral degree in 1980, and throughout the 1970s seemed to be a, a period in which we all expected enormous progress. The work in remote viewing was a, was very, very promising. And, and yet, uh, while the Internet has achieved its full potential, or close to it, uh, it, parapsychology has yet to do so, like the field of UFO research.
1: And, and we demonstrated 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that the internet was the ideal tool as a technological base to conduct sophisticated scientific remote viewing experiments. And that has really never been exploited to the scale where it could be. And it's, it's a resource. It's free. I mean, you don't need it. <laughs> You know, you don't need uh, a uh, to, to write a grant application to to use the internet. It's it's a, you know it's in it, it's in my phone. You know, it's free, and and we still have to do still have to go through that. It's one more revolution that should be coming.
0: Well, Jacques, it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you and to have a sense of where we stand today in these important areas of research many people would say nothing could be more important than uh, understanding the mystery that ufo's represent uh, i tend to think the mystery of, of parapsychology is probably equally important and probably related but uh, in any case i want to thank you so much for spending this time with me and with the viewers of new Thinking aloud, and I'm hopeful that we can have many more conversations.
1: It would be uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you for being with me, and for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.